This is an AMI podcast. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Navigating public transit can be daunting, especially when bus stops are designed poorly or put in deeply inconvenient locations. This is something that's on the mind of Amy Amanti. Amy is a community reporter in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hey, good morning, Amy. Oh, good morning, Dave. So, Amy, you've been encountering floating bus stops in the North Shore area. Floating bus stops are located on the island or the median in the middle of the street. Terrible place to put a bus stop. Uh, How common are these in the North Shore area? Well, they're they're becoming more and more common. This has been a conversation that's been popping up literally for the last couple of years between many of the municipalities, excuse me, in the greater Vancouver area. The greater Vancouver area has 44 municipalities. The North Shore is three of them. Wow. Um, Right. So, you know, uh, Vancouver proper, I suppose you could call it. has put has built these um, based on models that have come from other municipalities outside of British Columbia. Um, and so, you know, once they put them in, other municipalities go, oh, well, they're doing it. Let's do it, too. Um, and some of the other municipalities have advisory committees that are saying, whoa, 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 wait a second. Right. Um, you know, this was big on Vancouver Island that, um, you know, maybe had a human rights complaint around something similar with bike lanes in their area and floating bus stops. And so this has been a conversation that's been going around for a little while. And they are so complicated. I don't know, Dave, have you experienced one of these? I try to avoid them as much as possible. They're super common in downtown Toronto Mm -hmm. for the streetcars, right? You have to cross into the middle of the street to get a streetcar. In a lot of cases, it might not be a floating median. It's actually you running through traffic to get onto a streetcar, which seems like especially poor. But the concept is the same. The idea is that you're pulling public transit away from the sidewalk. So you're creating a situation where you've got to move through a bike lane or move through a street to get to the public transit. And Amy, there's a reason why I choose not to take uh, streetcars downtown because I don't want to get hit by a car. Yeah. And and I think that that one of the bigger problems is like if you had a controlled intersection where, you know, the, the light goes red and you had to cross the street to the medium and you could do that safely, maybe but the bike lanes become an even bigger problem because bikes don't stop for you right um, bikes tend to whiz by and you don't hear them um, until you get hit by them right they don't tend to uh, stop for pedestrians they don't tend to pay attention to stop signs or stop lights the same way um, depending on whether it's a like a literal controlled intersection or not i've got one right in front of my house um, and, you know, it is really complicated to try and navigate. Um, so the more bike lanes we put in because we want to, you know, uh, promote cyclists who are commuting, not just cyclists who are, you know, recreational cyclists, but commuting yeah. cyclists who it's, are it's, at it's, faster it's, speeds. It's part of the green transportation revolution. Like, and, like it it, and, it, and it does need to happen. I, I think you may have painted a little too broadly with that brush, Amy, but there are lots of cyclists who do disobey streets, like street rules. 
Yeah, certainly. Certainly there are. And and I just, I find that they sneak up on me. And so, you know, some of the conversations about that are like how we delineate, you know, pedestrians on sidewalks from the bike lanes, right? And that's even, that's complicated too, right? Um, because you have to be able to cross over. So for example, what's happening here, one of the things that is happening is if you've got a delineation between your sidewalk and your bike lane on the road, so some kind of raised medium, for example, between those two surfaces, that's got to cross over where you would uh, per cross perpendicular to cross the street and the bike lane to get to the floating bus stop. Right. So now you've put in an additional hazard for a pedestrian who has a lack of sight to cross over, right? Because you're still having to cross, you still have to have uh, the pedestrian across, you know, the pedestrian bound through the bike lane. Yeah. So then, you know, and then what they do is they ask folks with sight loss to look at drawings of these things uh, before they install them and try to explain them sort of in uh, in practicality instead of saying, you know, here's a, a tactile you can feel or let's take you to a site visit where you can experience one. They try and explain three examples. Yeah, this, it, this drives it, me bonkers. It, right? do, it, it doesn't it doesn't represent the real world. It doesn't represent the real world experience. It doesn't at all. But what they do from a from a from an advisory committee level is they say, here are three options pick what's pick what you think is best instead of saying what is accessible what do you need to feel safe and none of the three options are great options so you're forced into this almost binary of trying to pick well what's lesser of the three evils when mm -hmm. none of those three things are really safe but then they go to council and they say things like well you know the advisory committees chose option c as the safest so let's go with option c whereas that doesn't mean it's a safe option, but then all of a sudden it gets endorsed as an option. Yeah, it's it's the guise of consultation, right? That, that yeah. people say, oh, well, we consulted. We consulted, and this That's is what right. they picked. But it wasn't yeah. an actual meaningful consultation. Amy, I, I do I do think it's worth like pumping the brakes for a second here, though, yeah. because there is some merit in creating segregated space for public transit. Yes. Like there, like there really is. But you can't do it haphazardly, and you yeah. can't create these situations where it's oh, you've got to cross in the middle of the street to get to a meeting in the middle of the street, like you identified before. It needs to be through a controlled traffic light or stop sign scenario, and then that median you have in the middle of the street needs to be big enough. This goes back to the wider sidewalks conversation mm -hmm. that was had as part of the daily poll today. You need mm -hmm. to have a median that's actually wide enough that people can safely be on that median and not potentially get knocked into the road. Well, you know, um, Dave, we I think we also need to look at uh, other cultures and other parts of the world. So like, you know, places like Vancouver, for example, we have a, a strong bike culture, but we don't have the kind of bike culture that like, say, Amsterdam has mm -hmm. full of trolleys, full of cyclists. Um, and so that kind of bike culture has a different level of um, I don't want to use the word respect loosely, but they have a different level of being able to integrate with pedestrian foot traffic. Uh, and with uh, vehicle traffic, right? They they commun they, they they have a different bike relationship culture, and so and their trolleys are in the middle of their roads. But but you feel safe crossing. You feel safe integrating. Wow. <laughs> I've been to very safe. <laughs> My experience uh, 20 years ago uh, maybe wasn't quite as safe, but I didn't quite understand their 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 design principles. Uh, so I think well, my, maybe my, I... my experience in 2019 wasn't too bad. Okay, okay, that's um, good. <laughs> but but you know if we if we maybe if we maybe took our cues from from places that had maybe a little bit more updated knowledge 
you know, instead of just trying to throw, because what, what I feel like is it's like a patch, like a thrown, a patchwork attempt without communicating with with folks who are who have no other options than to use buses than to cross bike lanes right if we're if we're if we're not consulting with the most vulnerable of people who really have no choices but to access transportation in this way you know if, if we look at if if we don't if we don't pay attention to our most vulnerable people in society that is you know i think that's how we need to measure uh measure a country, measure yeah, a municipality, I think is how we take care of our most most vulnerable people. Certainly, certainly. Uh, Amy, what's going on in regards to community meetings in relation to floating bus stops? Yeah, so um, certainly what's happening right now, TransLink is, is uh, our, our uh, transit authority here. They're having ongoing conversations, stakeholder meetings um, around this, this conversation. So that's one part of it. And the North Shore right now, I'll be a part of some of these uh, stakeholder meetings that are happening in November. They already have, as you know, existing floating bus stops. And so groups of us will be going out uh, to review these existing floating bus stops. I don't know what can be done to change them now because they're already built into the inter infrastructure. My hope is that we can circumvent any future ones that are built, um, mm. which is also kind of a problem because then you don't have any consistency in how there's design, right? So right. You know, as a blind person, you come across them differently every time. Yeah, the, tw the 2020 floating bus stop doesn't represent the 2025 floating bus stop right. and the access issues uh, remain the same when there's not consistency. Got uh, Amy, yeah. gotta be quick on these last yeah. two, but the Alliance for the Equality of Blind Canadians is hosting a two-part workshop about emergency preparedness. So uh, what's on deck here? Because obviously that's a pretty broad topic, but it's an important one. Yeah, I think, you know, the essentials of this this topic really, Dave, is that the Alliance for Quality of Blind Canadians in British Columbia here is looking to create resource materials on how folks can better be prepared for the big emergencies, whatever those are, flooding, earthquake, fires, all, all from all different aspects, right? And so they're asking folks from uh, the blind partially sighted community to get involved and to share what your barriers are, um, what, uh, how you are, you know, how you prepare yourself for any of these things that might happen. And so there's a couple of uh, stakeholder meetings, one of them's tomorrow, um, but there also are some coming up in November as well. Um, so. I think you know you can probably check out your blog for all those details and links if you want to. Nope. To, nope. nope. Can't check out the blog anymore, but I will oh. give you the I'll give you the website right now. BlindCanadians.ca. BlindCanadians.ca. That's BlindCanadians.ca. Okay, Amy. One more. It's a fundraiser. Vocalize it's music. A fundraiser. Musical bingo fundraiser for the first time in four years. They're hosting. First time in four years. Well, we had a little thing called the pandemic. Um, and as you know, the theater and the arts went dark and Vocali does uh, a live description for theater and arts and cultural events. I talk about Vocali a lot. So coming up on November the 4th, we have our musical bingo fundraiser, uh, fun time for all. And so if you're interested in tickets, um, please join us at Moose's Down Under Pub. So uh, Vocali.ca is where you can find those tickets. Uh, there's still some available and, uh, you know, everything you expect from a fundraiser and more. And uh, all the folks at Moose's Down Under are, have Aussie accents, which <laughs> yeah, you've you've had a lot of nice things to say about Moose's Down Under before. They're November, great folks. Yeah, November the fourth, six p.m. November the fourth, six p.m. Moose's Down Under Pub and info at vocali.ca. Info at vocali.ca is the email address. Vocali.ca is the website. Amy, thank you for this. Have a great day. Yeah, you too, Dave.
That's Amy Amanti, community reporter in Vancouver, British Columbia. In 60 seconds, Britney Spears has released her memoir, and Laura Baines got a review in the Entertainment Report. But first, Google's new phone is changing how people take group pictures. Mike Dubusky explains how in Tech Trends. The new Pixel 8 Pro gets the expected bevy of new camera hardware, says Michael Prospero, editor-in-chief of Tom's Guide. A 50-megapixel camera on the back, which can also record raw photos and video. But the camera's software gets something less expected, a feature called Best Take. Prospero says it's intended for group pictures. The camera takes a burst of photos when you click the shutter, and then... If one person's blinking in one shot, they might not be in another one, so you'll be able to select that one. And then you'd be able to sort of mix and match faces from different photos it took so you can get one shot that's perfect, if you will. Google says it's aimed at parents of fidgety kids, but some have raised concerns about its potential to misrepresent the photo's subjects. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Britney Spears has a new memoir out. And Laura Bain, that's your focus in today's entertainment report. Yeah, that's right, Dave. You foreshadowed it a bit last week, and now the day has arrived. We're talking about the new memoir, The Woman in Me, which just dropped yesterday. Uh, so you can find it pretty much everywhere, but it's available on Audible, and that's where I gave it a listen. Uh, so the book contains revelations, uh, which have been all over the headlines, including that Spears began drinking alcohol with her mom in junior high and that she was pressured by uh, her boyfriend at the time, Justin Timberlake, to end a pregnancy in the early 2000s. And of course, the book talks about her 13-year conservatorship in which her father was given control over pretty much every aspect of her life. So about the conservatorship, she writes, the conservatorship stripped me of my womanhood, made me into a child. I became more of an entity than a person on stage. I found this to be a super thought-provoking memoir, um, and it had me reflecting on the extent to which dominant social narratives rooted in patriarchy contributed to Britney's loss of agency. I think it's a little bit too easy to try and pin it on her family. I think we sort of maybe hold a collective responsibility. Uh, and so what I want to ask you, Dave, is do we as a society allow female pop stars today to embody more nuanced roles than we did 20 years ago? Laura, it's such a good question social media is a horrible place like it's a horrible toxic place but it has created avenues and venues in the freedom of communication and speaking directly to people that at least protects celebrities and female celebrities to a degree from some of the more tabloid-esque coverage that used to exist in media spaces and therefore trickle down into more broad conversations about female celebrities 20 years ago. I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying that it's better. And I think that's a really important distinction. Just because you've given people the democratization of communication, that they're not needing to use middle people as... Um, as avenues to get their point across. I don't know how much that would have changed for Britney Spears because things spiraled pretty fast for her over the course of a couple of years. But I do think about positive cases in people like Demi Lovato, who was going through their own struggle with addiction and mental health issues and was able to sort of continue to be their own advocate and their own voice to counter a lot of media narratives about them as they were transitioning away from being a Disney princess towards a 
adult life. I, I do think that it's better, Laura, but I still think that it's quite bad. It's better than it was 20 years ago, but just like society is still just a very toxic place towards uh, women, especially young women, especially, especially young women in the public eye. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, Dave, that you're you're astute there to raise the issue of social media because, uh, you know, certainly the tabloids, when you talked about that time of Britney kind of spinning out, I think uh, even the way that that's viewed now, she presents a very different picture of what was going on in her memoir. And keep in mind, she had just had two children within two years. She was going through a divorce, like she was being hounded by the tabloids. And I think, uh, you know, she really just didn't have an avenue to get her story out at all. Mm. And I think uh, social media has allowed for that to some extent. And I think perhaps lessened our appetite for things like, uh, you know, photos and, and kind of celebrity gossip, because, you know, if I if I want to hear about a celebrity, I'm more likely to go to their Instagram than I am to, you know, pick up a a tabloid at the grocery and, yeah, store. And Entertainment Weekly or a tabloid or People Magazine or whatever it might be. Uh, Laura, you, you pounded through this entire memoir in one afternoon. I'm beyond impressed. Uh, what surprised you about it? What were your thoughts on it? Um, yeah, you know, I had to be honest. I just, I wasn't a Britney fan back in the day. It just wasn't the type of music that I was listening. I, like I was 14 when Oops, I Did It Again uh, or uh, Hit Me Baby One More Time. Mm -hmm, that was mm -hmm. it. That, you know, it just wasn't... Uh, wasn't my jam when I was 14. Uh, so I learned a lot about Britney. And uh, I think what surprised me was how passionate she was about her artistry and about creative control. And she didn't want to be doing these same sort of stale Vegas shows where she was just doing her her hits. And that was really um, very stifling for her. Um, but yeah, I, I think maybe some of what surprised me is just how reflective it is. And I hope that sort of the wider lessons uh, about what we do to mega stars, especially female mega stars, doesn't get lost in the revelations and yeah. the, books, the, yeah. the more salacious relationship details. I mean, at the end of the day, who really cares, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's it's fun to gossip about, but you're right. There comes there it comes this, there, there comes this role where at what point should the mass media stay away from salacious? And the mass media has a terrible habit of uh, leaning in into the salacious. Laura, you did not, though, and I'm so grateful for that. Have a wonderful day. Talk to you tomorrow. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I guess I just mean there are more more interesting things at play here. Yeah, you have a have a great day as well. <laughs> there are definitely more interesting things at play. That is Laura Bain, entertainment reporter, coming up after the break. The province of British Columbia is dealing with some cybersecurity issues. Not so much the governments, but a couple of the businesses in BC. Nicole Reese will have that as part of the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.